Good morning, Tabernacle. And it's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's very great to, to feeling to be here in front of you today, and uh, those of you watching at Manistee and those online. Um, sincere welcome. Uh, it takes effort to get here, uh, and it's easy uh, to take that for granted as uh, as a pastor. Um, there are times I'll come and it's like it's a little empty, and it's like, what did we do wrong? What's wrong with this congregation? These Israelites, they can't, no, no, we would never do that. Uh, but I realized that it actually takes, it's a choice. Um, and I'm going to tell you, you made a good choice this morning, so thank you for being here. Uh, I want to give you a seasonal update. Now, sometimes you get like a weather update, this is a seasonal update. Uh, summer's kind of winding down, the end of summer. Oh, I know, I think we're all going to die. Not really. Sometimes that's how my heart feels a little bit, because uh, I absolutely love summer and the freedom of it. But there's a way that I know that other than just the weather. Um, you know, Buckley is, is kind of a small town, uh, less than 1,000, I believe. So that would qualify as small, right? Um, yeah. Yes, I'll answer for you. Um, it is a small town, probably closer to 700 than 1,000, but I, I don't know for sure. Uh, and I live north of Buckley. And uh, it's actually a place called Buckley Heights, if you've heard of that. Uh, it's a few miles north, and off a dirt road, and then I get on to County Line 633 to come into Buckley. It's, you know, about four miles. And so I'll, I'll get out there ready to take a ride. And there have been times this week where I've had to wait up to 30 seconds before I could take a ride. There was that much traffic on my road. I felt a little offended. Um, and then I, you know, would make it into town, and I would go to the Buckley Mall, uh, the general store. Uh, and there were a couple of times this week, I, there were like five customers in front of me. And it's really irritating. Uh, but that's a kind of a sign of the end of summer, because th- that means the old engine show is happening. And I'm pretty sure that the last count, there were up to 10 million people that went to the old engine show. <laughs> and it's pretty inconvenient. And that's the end of summer. Um, thank you for letting me get that little bit of therapy. So w- when I was a kid, uh, I'm the youngest of, of uh, four boys in our family, and uh, later in life, uh, I had a foster sister, um, but in the growing up times for us, there, there were four of us, and you know, a tiny little mom, and she ruled the house, and she was uh, very fastidious and, and kept us in control. We were pastor's kids. We needed a lot of reining in and you know, how to behave and all of those things. Uh, but I can remember my mom would call me a name sometimes, like not name calling. This isn't like I need therapy over this, but she would say to me, you are a walking tornado. And I, you know, for the longest time, I didn't know what that meant, but what that meant apparently was I would go through a clean room and it would be all unclean afterwards. Uh, and she would go, well, how did that happen? And I would go, I, I just walked through the room. I don't know. Right? So I was this walking tornado. And, you know, as a, you know, as a youngster, there's a little pride in that. But as I get older, it's like, that's not the greatest label, right? Because we call people walking things, right? Uh, sometimes somebody will be creative. And one of my friends had, was talking about a person. And I'm not going to tell you whether it was a man or a woman. And said, they're a walking Oscar for the biggest drama of the year. That's really, that might have been you. (laughs) 
And you don't want that label, right? Uh, another one is, is walking accident. You know, a walking accident. I, I don't know if you have friends like this, but we've had several, my wife and I, a, a walking accident. Um, a walking accident is someone who can go into a normal situation and end up with a broken bone where no broken bone should have happened, right? Yeah, anybody have friends like that? I mean, we used to get calls from one person in particular, and she had a child that was a walking accident as well, so we got numerous calls. Uh, they didn't call me for, like, pastoral advice. They were calling Heidi uh, for medical advice. Do you think it's broke? Should we go to the hospital? You know those people, right, walking? So that came into my mind uh, recently, and it's about uh, this particular bit of Scripture we're going to teach today, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And the beauty uh, in that is, uh, in, in talking with uh, John, our lead pastor, uh, uh, well over a month ago, and, and I started thinking about this, the, the main word that came out was paradox. It's a paradox. And I started thinking linguistically. I'm thinking of how do people talk to each other? What devices do we use to talk to each other to create more brilliant ideas or share our mood or share our love or share our disappointment in other people? And it's quite fascinating what we do. Uh, and so Paul uses a couple of devices here. And one of them, which is the smaller of the two, actually he uses a, a number of them that we're not going to talk about, but Paul is an incredibly intelligent man. And he has been writing, and he is a student and a scholar and a theologian of, of the best of kind. He's in just that brainy guy that has motivation, that you kind of are around, and, and you just can't help but be impressed by this man. But he uses sarcasm in this little bit of writing at, at a level. It's not, it's not necessarily terrible, but there's a bit of sarcasm. And so sarcasm, this is what it says. Sarcastic statements are sort of a true lie. Isn't that a cool statement? It's a true lie. You're saying something you don't literally mean. So, you know, I wasn't literally, you know, a, a, a walking tornado as a kid. That was figurative. Um, but... My brother and I, my oldest brother, Mike, and I, we've done a lot of weekend projects together. And I remember one particular time I was cutting boards, and on one board out of a thousand, I cut it too short. And those of you in carpentry know, you know, you can't cut twice if you cut short. If you cut long, you can cut twice, but you can't cut twice if you cut short. And my brother looks at me and says, great job, Einstein. Oh, come on. Somebody's got to have some... Okay, everybody stand up and take a breath. We're going to do some exercise to wake up. No, we're not. It was a hilarious statement. And it's the way men talk to other men when it's appropriate. But we've kind of outlawed sarcasm amongst the staff because it can be a little too cutting at times. And uh, it's a very passive aggressive. And it can make a really terrible statement about somebody. Um, and then you get to go, oh, just, just kidding. And it's like, no, no, we don't get to do that with each other. We have to speak truth. Now, humor is highly encouraged and all of those uh, things that we can do. But sarcasm, it's kind of between men. And in today's society, I'm probably going to get kicked off from something for saying that, right? But we have to realize who Paul was writing to. Paul's writing to a very patriarchal society. That doesn't mean women aren't valued 
that they're not valued today, that we're not equal, that God doesn't see them. But that's how the society actually was. It's called truth. So we have to get over it. It happened way in the past, and we can't change that. So he's writing to men, and he's being sarcastic. In a way, what he's going to say to these guys is, nice job, Einstein. He's getting their attention, and he's using this device as a man speaks to another man. But then there's another thing that he uses that's brilliant, and it's paradox is the word. And paradox is a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense and yet is perhaps true. That's a beautiful definition. So long ago when John and I were suddenly seeing that God was blessing this church and it was going to get big, it's like, well, we don't know how to run a small church. What are we going to do if it starts to grow? So we began to read books. Um, And I'm going to be honest with you, most of the books John read and I just read his highlights uh, in the books because they got boring after a while. But there was one in particular that was really brilliant. Uh, and I can't remember the exact title, but, you know, to grow big, you got to go small, which is counterintuitive, right? In order to actually take a congregation and to grow it big, the first thing you got to do if you want to do it right is go really small. So without elaborating, that's a paradox is what that is. So it's, it's opposed to common sense and yet perhaps true. So there's this paradox in life. And it is, in fact, in fact, the paradox is life itself. So as human beings, um, one of the things that we do is we strive to live. Do you agree with that? We strive to live. So an example would be this. If you didn't know how to swim, and we're by an Olympic-sized, 20-foot-deep swimming pool, and I'm a cruel person and come up and shove you in, and you go all the way to the middle, what's the first thing you do when you hit the water? You try to swim. Why? Because you're trying to live, right? So we try to live. So what I've done in premarital counseling is I do this trick with people, and it's got a deeper meaning, but it's, it's kind of, it's just a silly question that I'll ask of the guy. And, and guys, I'm going to ask for participation in just a minute. It'll be a one-word participation, so don't, don't freak. Uh, but, but the last two services, men, you failed me, right? So I'll ask this uh, prospective groom, and they're usually young, and they haven't been married before, and I'm trying to get them past the lovey-dovey stage to a little bit of the reels, but I don't want to ruin everything for them, you know, so, but, but that's kind of my job, and, and so I'm doing that, and at one point, I'll ask the guy, so if you were in a situation that was dangerous, and a guy came out with a gun, would you take a bullet for her? And guys, the answer is, thank you, yes. I would take a bullet for it. That's the simplest test you're ever going to pass, right? Because it's the right thing to do. But that's paradoxical, isn't it? Because you would be jumping in front of a bullet, most likely getting wounded, possibly killed, when our goal is to stay alive, right? So, you know, I've, uh, I've, I've joked with people about, well, it depends on reaction time, you know, and all that stuff. And, you know, I shared with Heidi, it's like, um, I'm 62 and a little arthritic. I don't know how quick I'm going to get there, but I'll try, right? And she's, you know, my wife, she's so loving. She goes, well, I'll just walk closer to you. It's like, bingo, way to make it even harder. 
if I fail. So paradox is, is this word. And uh, I decided um, during the course of this study that uh, if I was going to be called a walking something, right, I want to be called, I want to be a walking paradox. And, and that's going to be the crux of this message is, is paradox and, and be a walking, talking, breathing, living paradox and what that means. So we're going to take these two literary devices that Paul has used, a tiny bit of sarcasm and then something very paradoxical that has vast meaning for us, and we're going to see if we can uh, maybe apply it to our lives today. So if you follow along, I'm reading out of the NLT. We usually read out of the ESV version, uh, but we're going to read 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 13, and I'm going to pause uh, about verse 10. And and we'll talk and then we'll finish. So this is what it says. Verse 1. So look at Apollos and me as mere servants of Christ who have been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. Now a person who is put in charge as a manager must be faithful. As for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment at this point. My conscience is clear But that doesn't prove I'm right. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. So don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns. Now, that's an important verse. I'll read it again, part of the verse. So don't make judgment about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns. For he will bring our darkest secrets to light and reveal our private motives. Then God will give to each one Whatever praises do. Brothers and sisters, I've used Apollos and myself to illustrate what I've been saying. If you pay attention to what I've quoted from the scriptures, you won't be proud of one of our leaders at the expense of another. For what gives you the right to make such a judgment? What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? Verse 8, you think you already have everything you need. You think you are already rich. You have begun to reign in God's kingdom without us. I wish you really were reigning already, for then we would be reigning with you. Instead, I sometimes think God has put us apostles on display, like prisoners of war at the end of a victor's parade, condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the entire world, to people and angels alike. Our dedication to Christ makes us look like fools. But you claim to be so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so powerful. You are honored, but we are ridiculed. So let's pause there just a minute. So this sarcastic, this sort of a true lie that Paul is using becomes very evident in verse 10. But I want to go back to that verse 5. So don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time. One of the things that Christians have a tendency to do is be judgmental. Um, I happen to be one of us, and I am. I'm judgmental, and it, it, it's a character flaw, and it's something that, that, that I wish that I did less, and God's opened my eyes to it many years ago, and it's a continual process for me to work on this, but when I'm tired, and I'm exhausted, and I haven't taken care of myself, and I'm weak, I tend to be a little bit more judgmental than the other days. 
Uh, and I've searched for verses, you know, that could be more applicable because if that's an affliction that you have as well as I, then there may be something simple. And he says, don't judge ahead of time, right? Just, just don't worry about that at all. So ahead of time means that there's a time coming. Well, when is that time? When do I get to be judgmental, right? And it says after Jesus comes and I won't need to be judgmental anymore. Well, that makes it really simple and easy. So I'm giving us all this little verse as a little gift, right? If you struggle with this portion of life, judgmental, um, then God says, uh, hey, don't worry about it. There's going to be a right time, and it's after I come. There's a weight off my shoulders. That's cool. So back uh, to verse 10. Paul says our dedication to Christ makes us look like fools. But you claim to be so wise. We are weak and you are so powerful. You are honored and we are ridiculed. He's using this sarcastic tone, which seems a little bit brutal to other men. So men, how many of you have had a a job, site, whatever work that you went on that have been all men or been on a sports team that have been all men? Is the language a little different when it's just guys as to when it's mixed company? Yes. And are we always sparklingly wonderful and uplifting to each other? No. Men have a different language. And we got to be okay with that. That's how God wired us. It doesn't mean that we're not sinful and lost and need help. No, we, we need all of that. But part of it's cool and it's right. And it's how, how we interact. And it helps us blow off the steam that sometimes creates. And, you know, sometimes it leads to a little fist fight. But it's usually over. And then we hug and we go on. And somebody can call us, nice job, Einstein, without us losing our religion and our friendships and our sanity. And it's just the way guys are. And could we just be okay with that for a minute? I I really think that it's okay. So Paul is talking to these guys, and he's pointing out, here's your flaw. This is what it is. So we have to remember, what is Paul doing? He's building a church. Last week, we talked about the foundation of Jesus Christ. If the church isn't built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, it's not a church. It's a problem. It's a cult. If it's built on Jesus Christ, it's a church. So he's got this group of people that continue to demonstrate this uh, unsustainable, as far as the church goes, lack of unity in a really perpetual problem called spiritual immaturity. So he's calling them out. Why? It's because he's a mean dude and he lost his temper. No, I don't think so. I think it's because he loves them so much that he's willing to risk his relationships with some people. And the church of Jesus Christ is so important to him that he's willing to have people misinterpret what he's saying at the loss of their friendship, possibly even gaining their hatred. That's how mature he was. Some of us have been parents. And when you have a teenager who sometimes leads toward the tendency of at least looking like they despise you, you're going to make a decision that's going to go against what they think is right. And yet in your maturity, you know that it's the best thing. And so you go ahead and you accept it. And the reason you do that is because you love your kids. You love them. And you're willing to set a boundary for them. And there will come a day, most likely, where they'll bounce around and go, thank you. 
because they'll mature as well. So Paul uses this sarcasm to get his point across. You're causing division. You're pretending to be mature and powerful and wise. You're pretending like you've got your complete act together because you are claiming the name Christian. And what you're really doing is damaging the reputation of Christ and your brothers and sisters. Stop it. That's what he's saying. Today, we don't like to be told stop it. Uh, But we become fools to the world. And that's the beginning of paradox, isn't it? If you follow Jesus. So if you're going to follow Jesus, then this paradox comes in where what we're doing seems contradictory to logic. Now, if you want to get along in America and you want to succeed in academia or jobs or big cities or even sometimes small sounds, I don't think it's as prevalent here, there's a whole narrative that you're going to need to start speaking. And if you choose not to do that and are still trying to succeed, that's called a paradox because you're going to be classified as a fool. And Paul is willing to be classified as a fool from his conviction. It's the beginning of the paradox. So let's, let's keep reading. Uh, verse 10. He says, Our dedication to Christ makes us look like fools, but you claim to be so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so powerful. You are honored, but we are ridiculed. And he goes here. Even now we go hungry and thirsty, and we don't have enough clothes to keep warm. We're often beaten and have no home. We work wearily with our own hands to earn a living. We bless those who curse us. We are patient with those who abuse us. We appeal gently when evil things are said about us. Yet we are treated like the world's garbage, like everybody's trash right up to the present day. Doesn't that make you want to be a follower of Christ? See, that's a paradox in itself. That's the sales pitch. You want to be a follower of Christ? Here we go. When evil things are said, this is how I am. Uh, When those people abuse us, this is how I act. And when people curse us, this is what I say. And it's counterintuitive to everything we're supposed to do. It's a paradox. What if I told you that being treated like garbage is one of the greatest blessings you could ever have. Am I a fool? I'm not trying to sell you something. I'm just telling you the reals. Have you ever thought about, has it, have you ever had a time when the opportunity to talk about your church or about your, your personal faith has, has just kind of made itself evident, but there's enough of a crowd around that, that it's second thoughts start coming in. And before we know what the opportunity is passed, I have, to my shame, I have, um, and, and I, I wish I had more courage. I wish I could be more like Paul and be willing to be more of a fool. But there's some times where it's so uh, obvious what the outcome is going to be, at least in my mind. And sometimes I'm really fragile and I forget who God is and why I'm even doing what I'm doing. I'll forget those things sometimes. Because I want Christianity to be warm and fuzzy and loving and kumbaya-ish. And and people are just attracted from our incense and the weird clothes we wear rather than the lives we live. 
So if I want to be a walking paradox, I don't want to be a walking paradox for the world. I want to be a walking paradox for Jesus. It's what I want to be. And, and so the invitation is this, you know, a walking paradox. Is that you? Do you want any part of it? Because it's really what you're going to sign on for. So if we go to humans, it's said in scripture that no love, nobody has greater love than they would lay down their life for another human, right? And most of us, I believe, compartmentalize that into physical death. Laying your life down would be considered physical death. And our experience uh, in, in the world are used to come from stories. Most of us don't actually end up in this particular situation. Stories in movies. And, um, you know, that, that's why I was asking the question with a guy. Would you, would you jump in front of and take a bullet? Would you lay down your life for this woman? And the answer is yes, because that's the right answer. But there's so much more to that question. So the greatest movie that says this out loud is Saving Private Ryan. And I don't know if you've saw it or not. I'm going to give you spoilers. So if you don't want to hear it, um, pray, I guess, because I'm going to tell it. Ryan, Private Ryan, is the son of a farming family in the middle of the country, and he has several brothers that are off to war. They're all off to war in World War II. And his brothers all end up getting killed in battle. And he's the last one left. And this is going to be, this is like super tragic, and it touches everybody's heart. And the, the generals, you know, in country, in charge of where troops are, find out about this, and they end up demanding a mission happen to free this man from battle because he's in, he's in France. He's in Europe, and he's, he's with a group of men that are out, and his life is in danger. They don't want this tragedy to happen for a mother to lose all of her sons in just a short period of time. And so a group is formed, and in the movie, the sergeant is Tom Hanks, and uh, he gets this ragtag group together, and their mission is to go find this guy, extract him, bring him back safely so he can fly back home. And Private Ryan doesn't know this is happening. He's out in battle. There were no texts. So this group goes, and along the way, there's a lot of questioning from the members of the small troop. Why? You know, what about us? I have a mom. Who is this guy that we're even we're risking our lives? And along the way, several of them die. And they end up finally locating him. And Spoiler alert, they save him. But Tom Hanks is fatally wounded. And he's sitting there in this dramatic end. He's propped up against a stone wall. And there's stuff going on all over. And he's definitely dying. And he calls for Private Ryan. And Ryan comes over and is kneeling down. And in his last breath, he says, earn this. And then he dies. And that's a fantastic statement because earn this. I mean, he's talking about the whole crew and all of the deaths. And in my mind, it's the worst possible statement I could ever hear if I was in that situation. Because I can't. No matter how I live my life, no matter what I do, no matter what success, failure, brilliance, or stupidity, I would never be able to earn the lives of those men back. 
I know what he meant. He meant go live a good life. In fact, at the very end of the movie, Private Ryan is now an old man and he's back in Normandy and he's at the gravesite of that sergeant. And in tears, he asks his little old wife, did I live a good life? Did I earn this? And it's touching and amazing and wonderful. And we give medals to people for that type of behavior. But, but the type of behavior that's talked about in Scripture when it says, will you lay your life down, doesn't earn medals. And yet it's just as hard. See, the paradox is God. The paradox is God completely holy having his creation, us, disobey, defy his love out of our own pride and distance ourselves and break the relationship with God. And he has a plan to get us back that is the most paradoxical bit you've ever seen in your life. He takes his son, who's completely innocent, and sends him in place, nailed to a cross. All of our sins, past, present, future, from all of the generations are nailed to him. And through blood and tears and horrendous torture, he dies and he descends to hell. And then he defeats Satan, sin, and death, rises on the third day. He ascends to heaven. That paradox is this, is that the most innocent person ever, the highest price ever paid for anything was Jesus. And it was completely unjust. And he did it for one reason, because he wants you, his child, to be in a relationship called love. That's, that's it. So it's this paradox that's happened. And I want to be a walking paradox. I mean, I can't be Jesus, but that, that's what I want to be, is a walking paradox. So there's been artists that have painted, singers that have sung, novelists that have written, poets that I don't understand have tried to describe what love is. There have, it's, it's a multi-billion dollar industry of trying to tell us what love is. And it's really simple if you really want to know what love is. I mean, I mean you know, you could be a young woman or a young man thinking, I, I want to be in love with someone and, and, and go have a life with them. I want that love. Well, what is that love? I don't know, but it's really pretty. And, and it, part of it really is. It's gorgeous. It's stunning. It's amazing. It's desirable. It keeps us going. It motivates us. But all of these songs and stuff, the vast majority of them that I've heard and the stories I've read are, are just, they, they just miss it by a mile. Because love is this. So I'm going to stay with husbands and wives, okay, because that's simple, and I think we can understand it, but it's with students and teachers and friends and friends and employees and employers, and, you know, it's all of us. It's in all relationship. You know, what is love? And in love is uh, finding something in yourself that's harmful to a relationship and be willing to be honest, to be willing to do the labor, to get in shape, so to speak, and continue to stay in shape so that I can kill that thing that's in me that's harming others with nothing expected in return. 
That's what it is. So maybe, maybe in my relationship with my wife, it's, uh, maybe it's my temper. Maybe every now and then I just lose it because I'm a really big deal and everything hasn't fit. And in reality, I'm just kind of scared and afraid and a little bit nervous. And there's all this stuff that's out of my control and I really want what's best for everything. So the best way to deal with that is to scream something out of rage and I realized that that just diminishes my wife and it makes her feel small and scared and frustrated and, and kind of unloved and unimportant. And I need someone to help me recognize it, like Paul that would write, way to go, Einstein. You just hurt the woman you claim to love. And he says, take it out back in the back 40. That was a term I grew up with. That means 40 acres, because everybody had a 40-acre farm at one time in the world. And you go in the back 40, and you take that part, and you kill it. You put it to death for someone else. That's what laying down your life really means. So if we were to do that, you know, maybe, maybe a wife has never really complimented her husband. She's had all of these expectations and all of these invisible lines in her head for her whole life, and she's never shared them. And the guy really doesn't know, but he hasn't met them. And when he does succeed, she never says, great job. In the back of her mind is always, couldn't you do a little better? Maybe it's time for her to take that out to the back 40 and kill it. And not so she'll get something back, but because it shows love. Because he's that valuable to you. And this is the one thing you can give. Because the toys and the gifts and the money means nothing. That's all going away. There's going to be some things that are going to last, and this is it. And then imagine if we extrapolate that to, to Christians in the world. You know, the greatest paradox of being a Christian is that we're in the world, but not of the world. That means we live in daily society in the world, which is sinful, but we're supposed to be his, and so we're not of this world. So that means something is different. And what if suddenly we began to kill the parts of us, little parts, that only shine anxiety and frustration and disappointment with the world and instead begins to show beauty and love and acceptance and no judgment. Do you want to know what Christians are known for? Being judgmental. That's why I've said it so much. That's what we're known for. I don't want to be known as a walking judge. I want to be known as a walking paradox and the walking paradox as I succeed some not completely. I've noticed that the rewards that come back are fantastic. I'm not expecting them, but they come back. And you want to know what that reward is? Peace. Joy. I made somebody smile not because I was funny, but because I loved them for a minute. That's it. And that's the peace that passes understanding. I was talking with my friend Roger early about that. There's, there's times when that just happens. This peace that passes all, it, sh- it shouldn't happen. You want to know why? Because it's a paradox. That's why. Jesus turned everything upside down. The king of the universe came to serve, not to be served. That's a paradox. 
He paid for your sin and my sin by his death. That's a paradox. He defeated Satan's sin and death. That's a paradox because we can't do that. And he did it because his dad wants us back. Pretty awesome. What I found, just as a warning, is that some of the things I thought I killed, I have this Frankensteinish ability to resurrect it and bring it back. And some of them I've had to kill numerous times. And some of them still might make their way back. But the cool thing is you might not know, and even if you did, you don't get to judge me about that. And even if you did judge me, I don't care. <laughs> right? So I might have to keep repeating some of these. We don't do it with perfection. We do it with progress, spiritual progress. And that, my friends, that progress is called spiritual maturity. So if you've had something in life that's been going on repeatedly for years, and you think you've matured, yet that's still the issue, I'm going to say, yes, some of you has. But spiritually, with this part, you're right back here. And so... What if we try something different? What if we try to kill it? And what if we allow some people in our lives that'll say, you know what, that part's dragging you down. This does not give us permission to go be sarcastic with one another. That's a terrible way to interact. That, that takes closeness and trust. But the paradox is being a friend who's willing to lose a loved friendship, a cherished friendship, over concern for another person and you're so concerned that you're willing in love to speak the truth to them when it's appropriate and that person might turn around and disown you but if you love you'll speak and if you if you love more important than speaking you'll act and I know all of us have spots that we can, we can act. In fact, as we close, that, that's what I'm going to pray about. Is I'm, I'm, the bands are going to come out here and in Manistee. And uh, I just want to close us in a prayer of this, this paradox that, that I hope you desire to come on that journey with me. Um, that, that God provide us the strength. And he provide us the wisdom but he provides us people who love us enough to help us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of this day. Help us never, ever to take a day for granted. Father, I've spent much of my life where nothing has changed from yesterday to today. And nothing has changed from a week ago or a month ago, sometimes even years ago. And I'm wondering why. That hasn't changed. And so much of it was a lack of knowledge and a lack of understanding and mostly overwhelming fear. And I was holding on to something sarcastically that I thought would bring me something important when in reality the paradox was that it was killing me. And it was killing my relationships. Father, bless the men and women who are willing to dive on a grenade to save other people, whatever that may look like. We honor them, and you know who they are. But just as importantly, those of us that don't get medals for doing that, 
Father, may you uh, teach us what parts of our lives need to die and that we would be willing for that part to die and that we would take an active participation in killing that sin. And Father, as we do that, help us not to become arrogant about being walking paradoxes. Help us to be doves in that, innocent. And help us not to expect greatness, but to desire whatever happens in our lives to point to Jesus, the foundation of his church. Father, bless this congregation. Thank you for the unity and the spiritual maturity you have given us throughout the years that's made up of individuals in all walks of life, from all backgrounds, from many different lengths of time. And you've provided them. And the saints that went before us, Father, we built this church on their love for the foundation of Jesus. May you continue to push us to grow harder. In your blessed name, amen.